Psalm 86 is, is where we're at. We're going to use this morning a little bit uh, as a review, um, as well as, as tapping into one last uh, character trait, if you will. Uh, we've been in this series um, called Smitten. And the idea of someone being smitten, if someone comes and just says they're smitten, we started with King David, who's a reigning king, a conquering warrior, uh, a man's man, uh, and yet here he is um, writing poetry, writing songs um, about how he's lovesick, about how he's smitten, about how he can't sleep at night. Remember this? This was at the very beginning, and how awkward I think it would be if, if a 40-year-old man came to me and was saying that. And then to find out that that's about his God. He's not a, a teen-sick, you know, person over, over uh, you know, a, a little romance. This is about God that he's talking about. So we've been looking at the Psalms this summer and here on into the fall, and we're wrapping it up this morning. And uh, I've been trying to keep this question in front of us as a congregation. What does it look like to have the love of Christ control you? What does that look like? I'd venture to guess if you were to just sit down and, and write a couple of adjectives or maybe one thing that you said, this is what, if I'm really honest, this is what controls, controlled, let's make it really specific, controlled my week. I wonder what that would be. Whether it would be emotions, and you just go, man, emotions controlled my week. My schedule. My iPhone controlled my week. My appetites controlled my week. This one besetting sin controlled my week. So we're asking and we're looking at this question, what does it look like to have the love of Christ control us? Just listen, 2 Corinthians 5.14 says this, For the love of Christ controls us. He's writing to a church. He's writing to those who are saints. Because we have concluded this, it's based on a fact that one has died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now in this season that we're entering into, and already there full-fledged in terms of... uh marketing, advertising, and mall, um, this idea of not living for ourselves, not being controlled by ourselves, uh, but actually living for someone else is remarkable. It's, it's unheard of, really. God can't or won't make us love him, but he has chosen to reveal himself to us. So just like any real relationship, you can't go in and force someone to love you. That's not how God set up the rules of relationship. And so I suppose in submitting to the rules of real relationship rather than robot programmed relationship, which is no relationship at all as we know it, God can't make you love him. But what he can do is reveal himself to you. And he's done just that. And to show himself to you. And truly, if this were ever true anywhere, this sounds arrogant from anyone else other than God. But to know God is to love God. And what we said is this, as we march through the Psalms, there are things you will read in Scripture that will leap off the page and you'll say, yes, I totally agree with that. That is in line with what I think God should be. And then if we're honest and we're looking at this as a truthful book 
And we're looking at this and saying this really is from God. We are going to read things in this book that are going to leap off the page in a different way. They're going to reach up and just smack us across the face. And it's going to be shocking to us to read some of the things. And we're going to say, no, that's not what God's like. How can that possibly be? Surely there must be something in the Hebrew that can twist this so that it fits my perception of the God I've, I've known. But here's the problem. If we don't read the Scriptures, if we don't allow the Scriptures to speak to us instead of us imposing our thoughts and will on it and we speak to the Scriptures, what happens is we make a God in our own image, don't we? We come up with a God that never crosses us. If a God never crosses you, if a God is always in agreement with you, who's God? It's you, right? You just look in the mirror and you say, that's that's the one I'm really worshiping. That's a frightening thought. So who's controlling you at that point? It's yourself. Christianity flies, has always flown in the face of that. Christianity has always angered a whole bunch of people. Jesus said over and over that it's a narrow way. Very few are ever going to find it. So we've been trying to do that. We've been trying to do the scriptures justice and say, Lord, if you're in this book, which we believe wholeheartedly that you are, speak to us. Show us who you are. We will be pliable as your people. We'll receive from you, and we won't try to demand things of you. Let me just run through some of the images. I'm a visual type of learner, and so most of these are title screens or things that you saw on your bulletin. And these are different psalms that we looked at that described God. We talked about a God who is near. A God who has come near. The Advent season that we're in, is talking just about that, where the divine and the human come face to face, close, intimate. Nearness is how God reveals himself. We also revealed and talked about a God who knows. And I don't know about you, but I find it exceedingly comfortable and comforting and awkward and terrible at times to know that God knows everything. Every star you see, every galaxy you see in this picture, he's placed there. He's called out by name. He knows. We also talked about the idea that our lover holds. And he holds all kinds of things. He holds the world in his hands. He holds judgment. He holds us. God is a God who speaks. And primarily we see it through the scriptures and through Jesus Christ. The most accurate representation of God the lover that you will ever see is Jesus Christ. That's why I want you over and over and over to be in the Gospels. Reading the words of Christ, soaking and marinating in the, in the, the context that he walked and breathed and lived. Because what you do is you start seeing uh, Palestine from way long ago being lived out in your own context. And in the people that you meet and in how you are to engage and interact with different kinds of things. He's also spoken to us in creation, though, has he not? We have a lover who speaks. Because the Psalms are so brutally honest, I think they're some of the most beloved chapters in all the, in all the Bible. If you look at many people's Bible, it's very worn in the middle. A lot of highlighting, a lot of underlining that went on, because a lot of times there's tears that soak our pages when we're reading through the Psalms. And the Psalms deal with such a wide range of life. Our lover is confusing, is the next thing we looked at. And all through the scriptures, there are so many things where clearly the psalmist, the person writing, the one crying out to God, is just confused. Do you feel in good company? 
I mean, isn't it good to know God took people who were confused by him and chose to use them to reveal his love letter to us? I know many of you are confused in here today. I'm confused on many things. It's good to be together. It's good to just call it out and say, God, you're confusing. We don't know everything about you. There's so much more to you than we could possibly hope to uh, to figure out, but we're going to keep searching. We talked about the idea that God accepts. We just sang some great truths. How deep and how wide, how high and how long is the love of Christ. No one's outside the reach of God. No one. We're going to look at God being merciful this morning, and and it's going to tie into so many of the things that we're talking about here. We also looked at a God who acts. And it's not just words or lip service. It's very clearly, sure, the cross is the absolute pinnacle. So we talk about celebrate the cross most often. But the acts of God are evident all through history. Not just the history of of Israel in the Old Testament that we can read about and is recorded for us, but as you just look at your own life and the way that God has has acted. Some of you have had your own personal Red Sea that God has just parted for you, and you literally walk through on dry ground. And you can just give account and say, God saved me. I cannot explain it any other way. It's that God saved me. Most of us, many of us, would not be sitting in this room today. In fact, we might be in a far worse off place were it not for the fact that God is wooing us, God is drawing us together. Can we just get some help um, seating people? We just need more room. Uh, Scrunch in some more if you can. Um, let me just do something else. Uh, uh, the idea that, that God delivers. Uh, God delivers. And that's something that we can say in a spiritual sense that God, God delivers. Uh, but, but also in a, in a day-to-day sense, not just in the, the giant and miraculous. We looked at the fact that God is silent. There are many times where, um, we are not hearing from God. And we're just struggling. We're walking through life and we feel as if we can't hear his leading and his direction. We talked about a God who is beautiful. We talked about a God who is powerful. Talked about a God who adopts and a God who tests. And finally, this morning, we're going to wrap it up just with the idea that God is merciful, full of mercy. And I, I use that word, uh, and we're going to look at it in Psalm 86. We're going to see it woven through Psalm 86, but really it's all over the place. But tracing the concept of mercy in the English Bible is a little bit challenging because of the fact that in the Hebrew and Greek there's many root words that kind of tie into it. If you were to go and do a study on God being merciful in your Bible and you wanted to type into a computer concordance or looking at yourself uh, old school way, here's what you'd have to look at. You wouldn't just look at, for instance, merciful, mercy, have mercy upon us. But you would need to look at these kinds of words. It's almost like there's linguistic circles that kind of overlap a little bit. Here's some other words you'd have to look at, look at in research. Kindness and grace and favor and compassion and pity and steadfast love and sympathy. So in some ways, the idea of God's mercy grabs all of that. And it's talking about a God who is all of those things. And I saved it for last on purpose because as I look through at all the other things that we've just mentioned, mercy is built into those. It's merciful that God is powerful and acts on our behalf. It's merciful that he adopts and tests us. 
It's merciful that he chose to reveal himself and speaks to us. Now, just let's take ourselves out of church context. Sometimes we define things differently in church as if somehow we can compartmentalize God in the church and that it doesn't apply to the world outside. That's a very dangerous thing to do. So I want you to think of mercy and just tell me what comes to mind when you think of the word mercy. Let me see some hands and let me hear some actual uh, words out of your mouth about what comes to mind when you think of mercy. Jeff, forgiveness. Okay, what else? Compassion. Understanding. Undeserved, okay? Undeserved. Quiddle, okay? Relief, all kinds of things, yeah. You want to be around merciful people, don't you? You want to get a merciful teacher, don't you? The idea of someone who's merciful, you're just drawn to that. You're drawn to that concept. You hold that up as an ideal. You say, that's the kind of person I'd like to be. When I think of mercy, there's there's a couple different rain, veins that my brain went to. Phil touched on this. One idea is that there's someone in, in authority um, who has every right to punish or make you pay, but withholds for whatever reason. And we use that term in legal sense all the time. There's, there's a merciful judge. There's a mercy ruling. There's all kinds of different ways that we use that term. But then just in a more general uh, sense, there's compassion, kind-heartedness, all that kind of stuff. And many of you just touched on that, 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 that God is merciful is really true in both of those senses. When I was putting myself through college, um, at first it was West Valley, which was $5 per unit. And, uh, isn't that awesome? And the most you could pay was 12 units. After that it was freebie. So you could take 21 units, but you'd only pay up to, up to 12. Uh, and it was $60. Yeah, yeah. And so the parking pass was about a third of that. Uh, on, I mean, it was just ridiculously cheap. Um, and so, uh, it got a little bit more expensive when I went to a, a private Christian school. That got a little more pricey. Um, but as I was putting my way through college and working my way through college, um, I primarily did that at a bank. I was a bank teller. And, um, bank tellers are not that different from bartenders. I've told some of you this before. But, um, a bartender, I've never been one, but I imagine you sit there and someone comes in and they're, they're, you know, they're drinking. So many times they're forgetting their problems or trying to forget them. But what do they do? They sit and talk to you about them. They're telling about their problems and their issues. And I suppose a bartender has to be a good listener. As a bank teller, here's what I'm doing. I'm sitting on a stool. They come up to a little window, and it's about, you know, this high. And they come up and lean. And what are they doing? They're telling me about their money problems, their life problems, their relational problems. I worked at the same branch for about six years off and on. And so I got to know people pretty well, actually. And, uh, and many people would actually open up to me. We were a very slow branch. And so, uh, so I would talk to them and all day long I'd be at San Jose Christian College learning theology and studying the Bible and, and I didn't realize it necessarily at the time, but God was grooming my heart and, and shaping me into a pastor, one who just shepherds people and loves on people. And then every afternoon I'd get in my, my Ford Escort and I'd cruise over to the bank and I would, I would put a tie on and I would sit behind a counter and people would sit and tell me their issues and their problems. And here's what I would have an opportunity to do. I would have an opportunity to practice just loving on people. Where my branch was is Baskman San Carlos. It is, if you draw about a two miles uh, radius from that specific spot, it it was one of the best little petri dishes of humanity 
where where so many different people came in and talked to me. And I got to rub shoulders and learn how to interact and learn how to just look in the eyes of someone who was in front of me and say, God made this person. This person's created in God's image. And no matter what I see on the outside, no matter what's going in through my nostrils and I'm smelling, this is a person that God made. God chose to form this person. And whether the parents thought it was a mistake or did it on purpose or not, God did it on purpose. So here's what's happening. Next door is a bar, a fairly seedy bar. And people would wander in, drunks would wander into the branch. And my bank manager was rather unhappy about this most often because she had to manage this scenario. And so they would come and they would try to cash deposit slips, for instance. And they would stagger up and they would do all sorts of things. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you the truth. The stench of someone being drunk in a bar turned me off to wanting to be a part of that scene if it was ever in me at all. There was just a stench and a sadness, actually, to talking to many of these people. Not to be graphic, but I'll just let you know. Every day I walked out of the branch and walked down an alley back to my car. What's in the alley is urine and throw-up for people who are getting sick off of their alcohol. So they're going into this place, and they're just trying to drown out their problems. And, and they're, they're coming into the branch periodically, hoping that the teller is going to make a mistake. There was also a ton of used car lots that as you head down West San Carlos are, are there. And um, until you get in the other way as you head toward Valley Fair. And I'd say they range in level of seediness from, uh, you know, 10 being the maximum, 1 being the zero. They're in the, they're in the 7 to 10 range, many of them. And I don't know how, I don't know if you've ever bought a car from that region of town or part of town, but I got to hear the backstory. The backstory was this. People coming in and bragging about the people they've taken advantage of to me. Some like to do it especially because they knew I was a Bible college student. And they thought it would be kind of funny to kind of rub that in. So these are seedy characters. These are uh, those who are crooked and greedy. There's also a mental care facility and a public hospital not far from from me. And so uh, the other kind of person I would see on a regular basis are those who are disabled mentally in some way, shape, or form have a very difficult time uh, functioning and dealing in society. And so part of their program to rehabilitate and, and get work back in is that they would have a social worker with them and about five or six of them, sometimes one on two, and they would come and do deposits. Then they'd go to the laundromat. Then they'd go to these different places. And they were trying to f- help them figure out life and see if they could do it on their own. And so I would get to deal with those who were utterly outcast and despised in society. And I actually formed relationships with some of them as best I could. And through nothing of myself, but through the merciful God that I'd come in contact with and just wanted to freely give to others, there'd be a long line. And several of them, many of them over the years, would wait for Dave. They wouldn't trust anyone in the bank except for me. Here's, here's all I did different, honestly. It's that I looked at them as a person. I really saw them as a person. And I wasn't dismissive to them. And I don't know how much of that that they got in their average week. So I was around uh, the drunkards and the crooked and the greedy and the despised across the street as a strip joint. So I was around prostitutes probably. And actually, I, I was around prostitutes and those who were doing other kinds of things with their body for money. 
and they would show up in our bank along with the people who ran those places, who I would put back in the CD category, were raking in money. I was around the homeless. There was a, a decent number of homeless people who were there, and they were outcasts. And the bank was robbed about six times in six years, so I was around the thieves of our community as well. Again, because of the unique location, it was right near a freeway and it had a back exit. So we were robbed so many different times. So like I said, this one spot, now mind you, I'm kind of, I'm kind of reaching down to the under parts of society a little bit more, aren't I? Of course, there were power suit businessmen, and there were uh, professors who came in, there were uh, business owners who came in, there were politicians who came in. Uh, there were all kinds of people that I got to interact with. I bring up all these people because of this. All day long, I'm, I'm hitting the books. I'm reading the Bible for the first time in my school. I never went to a Christian school before. So for the first time in my life, I get to open the Bible in a school and study it. And it counts as school credits. I loved it. I couldn't get enough of it. And I was hitting the books, and I was reading, and I was studying, and I was writing, and I was engaging in classrooms, and I was being poured into by professors. And then afternoons, I would go, and I would be meeting with these different people for a few hours a day. And you know, I was, I was just having this opportunity to just express and practice and put into motion what it's like to just love a wide variety of people. And here's what God showed me in a very, very clear and profound sense. The outcast drunk who's walking in, that's you, Dave. The person living a life of utter sin across the street, male and female, that's you, Dave. The desperate thief who can't think of anything better to do but to hold up a bank, every one of them was caught. So kids, terrible career path. Every one of them, without fail, was caught and prosecuted. That desperate person doing that, that's you, Dave. I got to see that spiritually I am the outcast on every single one of these people standing in front of me. The mentally disabled that other people are kind of laughing at, looking at, and taking advantage of if they can, that's you. You're a spiritual derelict who's in need of a merciful God. It was a powerful, powerful picture for me. The mercy of God in your life. The mercy of God shown off in my life. Offers hope to other people who are in need of mercy. And it shows off a great and powerful Father. It just gives glory to God. When His mercy is seen in our lives. Now there's a common phrase that we that we throw around and it's often used in athletics. I'm a very competitive person. I love sports. And in sports, you'll hear this phrase. There are some people who are decent at sports, gifted at sports, but they're not the greats at sports. You know who's great at sports? It's those who basically go into it in kind of a warfare mode. And Here's, here's what, here's what they have. They have that kind of killer instinct, right? And it says, no mercy. Who do you reserve no mercy for? Your enemies, right? 
I mean, it's those who you're, who you want to crush. It's not just that you want to teach them a lesson. It's not just that you want to win. You want to annihilate them and destroy them. Now, let me just give you a picture here. If God is on the one hand merciful and described as merciful and shown as merciful, think of how powerful it is that no mercy doesn't apply to one who could and has every right to display no mercy. As the perfect and pure and holy judge, looking at a people that are rebellious and running and actively tearing down what he's set up, has every right. And yet that's not how God is described. Psalm 86, I'm going to read through it in its entirety this morning. And um, I just want the word of God to kind of wash over our ears. Um, where's Marianne Holly? Is she in class? I think she is. I borrowed Marianne's Bible. Thank you, Marianne, so much. Um, she knows it. I didn't steal it. Um, but I couldn't find my New Living Translation. And I absolutely love the way the New Living Translation renders this. It says, Psalm 86, a prayer of David. Just listen up. Bend down, O Lord, and hear my prayer. Answer me, for I need your help. Protect me, for I am devoted to you. Save me, for I serve you and trust you. You are my God. Be merciful, O Lord, for I am calling on you constantly. Give me happiness, O Lord, for my life depends on you. O Lord, you are so good, so ready to forgive, so full of unfailing love for all who ask your aid. Listen closely to my prayer, O Lord. Hear my urgent cry. I will call to you whenever trouble strikes, and you will answer me. Nowhere among the pagan gods is there a God like you, O Lord. There are no other miracles like yours. All the nations, and you made each one, will come and bow before you, Lord. They will praise your great and holy name. For you are great and perform great miracles. You alone are God. Teach me your ways, O Lord, that I may live according to your truth. Grant me purity of heart that I may honor you. With all my heart, I praise you, O Lord, my God. I will give glory to your name forever. For your love for me is very great. You have rescued me from the depths of death. O God, insolent people. That's like bullies, kids. Insolent people rise up against me. Violent people are trying to kill me. And you mean nothing to them. But you, O Lord, are a merciful and gracious God, slow to get angry, full of unfailing love and truth. Look down and have mercy on me. Give me, give strength to your servant. Yes, save me, for I am your servant. Send me a sign of your favor. Then those who hate me will be put to shame. For you, O Lord, help and comfort me. I want to just give you a couple of uh, descriptors of God's mercy as I see it in Scripture. And there's so much that be hard to wrap it up, but I'm just going to give you a few. And uh, many of you have had some great meals lately. Part of the holidays is about food, isn't it? And uh, we love to buy food. I used to work at a grocery store too, man. Buy food, talk about food, prepare food. We don't like to clean up so much, but we do. Um, and I don't know if you've ever, you know, if, if, if you have just had this incredible meal or an incredible restaurant you've been to and you're trying to describe it to someone, but but you're excited about it. You're, you're anxious to, to tell them about it and say, I want to tell you about these great things. And, uh, and what I want to do is give you four things, um, about God's mercy and just say, this is, this is just a little snippet of what God's mercy is like. 
And I think from experience, those sitting in this room, I know some of your stories, others I don't have a clue. But just from experience, we could, we could do the same and should do the same to tell of the mercies of God. Let me hit a couple. One is that God's mercy is eternal. Uh, Lamentations 3.22 says this, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. By the way, of all the scripture I'm going to read here in the next few moments, look at how often steadfast love and mercies are just paired up together. They're almost synonymous. When we sing of the steadfast love of God, the love of God that isn't going anywhere, the unfailing love of God, all these songs we sing and themes we think about, those are tied into his mercies. Psalm 103, 17, But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. Psalm 106, 1, Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Long time, eternity, isn't it? Let me ask you a question. What is the kindness and steadfast love that you experience most often based on? Just think about it. I don't want to hear back from you necessarily. I want your brain to chew on this question. What is the kindness of others to you and you to others most often based on? Just think about it for a second. I don't know what your experiences in life have been like, but as I observe the world, as I read the newspaper, I don't read the newspaper, I'm not kidding. As I look at my iPhone and read the news, uh, as I talk with people, as I look at business transactions, as I look at managers talking to workers and workers talking to managers and family working with each other, here's what I most often see. It's most often based on back scratching, right? The basic fundamental principle that says, you scratch my back and I'll scratch your back, right? Now here's what happens in our house sometimes. We're, we're a family of back scratchers. We like getting our back scratched and our head rubbed and all that. Uh, you know, my little guy, Eli, the youngest in our, in our household so far, when he's doing a screaming fit, I just go into head massage mode. And it's about, we're at about 30% that this works right now. But once in a while, he just goes, yes. <laughs> you know, and the eyes get like half masked, and I'm like, yes, peace and quiet. You know, so I'm absolutely doing something else. No. Uh, but here's what happens if, if two people in my home were to say, hey, give me, give, me a, give me a back scratch for a little while, and then I'll scratch yours for a while. And one person did it, and the other one said, oh, never mind. I'm going to go get some lunch. What would go on in my household? An argument. Yeah. That would put it mildly. You would be, you would feel unjust. There would be an immediate, there would be telling going on. There would be, there would be words exchanged. There would be a, a sense of justice that would need to be demanded of right then and there. Childish, isn't it? Or is it? I mean, really, so much of the goodwill that one person extends to another, if not reciprocated, slowly or sometimes very quickly gets pulled back, never to be shown again. I would venture to say this coming Christmas season, there are some family hurts, rifts perhaps that have gone on for months and years that have some sort of tied-in root here to say, you know, at some point, I just, there wasn't anything coming back, and it was too hurtful, and we just stopped. 
to some degree, the mercy stopped going out because it wasn't reciprocated. Listen to Psalm 89:28, and this is just a tiny snapshot of the covenant love that God has for his people. I read this verse to show you that God's mercies are based on a covenant, on a promise, on his unchanging word. Listen to Psalm 89:28, my steadfast love I will keep for him forever and my covenant will stand firm for him. Now, eternal is really, really hard to imagine. It's so big, it's so out of our context that we can't grab hold of it. But you can count a day. You can count a day, and you can start to quantify weeks and months and years and decades and generations even. So maybe it's the mercy of God to communicate it this way, In Lamentations 3.22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. That's eternal. That's like, whoa, that's a long time. Forever and ever and ever. And sometimes we can check out with forevers and never ceasing. But listen to how it goes on. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. New mercies every morning, we say, okay, I get that. So that means every single time I wake up, and as I'm eating my breakfast every single morning, or showering every single morning, or brushing my teeth every single morning, it's a reminder that God's mercies are new today. I hope you cling to this, people. I do. I hope you cling to the idea that God's mercies are new this morning. That means that seven times in this past week and in this coming week, 365 days through 2012, his mercies will be brand new. If you're 25 years old here today, that's 9,125 mornings that you've lived. Isn't that awesome? It's one thing to know that God's eternal and his mercies is eternal. It's another thing, though, to break it down and say, God's mercies are new today. And when the enemy is lying to you, when the enemy is wanting to keep you in shame, when the enemy wants to isolate you from the community of God, because if they only knew the real you and the things that you struggle with and the things that you still struggle with, even though you've been a Christian for a long time, what you can call out and know and lean on is that, God, your mercies were new this morning. God, tomorrow morning, your mercies will be new. powerful. His mercy is ancient, but also ever new, and it absolutely transforms us. Here's the second thing about God's mercy, is that it's, it's, it leads us to repentance. God's mercy leads us to repentance. I want you to open your Bibles to Joel for a moment with me. And in Joel, there's a story scene, uh, Joel chapter 2. And essentially what we have is an enemy that is imminent to attack. And the prophet Joel records this in Joel chapter 2, verse 12. It says, yet even now declares the Lord. 
Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. The reason it says even now is because judgment is imminent. It's right there. He says, even in the ninth hour, even when you're all the way neck deep into this thing, even when you're running headlong into sin, is what I would say, even now, right now, today, repent, turn. He says to do it with the whole heart. And he points out that there must be the the customary external accompaniment of weeping and fasting and mourning. It's this display that, yes, I'm really sorry for my sin. I'm sick about my sin. But there's also this internal element that he points to. Talks about the rending. A rend means to tear into pieces, to rip. Some of you have seen pictures of the New Testament where Jesus is um, declaring himself to be God and the, the Pharisees are there and What do they do with their robes? They rip their robes, right? There's a rending of their robes. They're showing their anger. I'm so angry at this. This is such blasphemy that I'm going to show it to you by ripping my robe. Well, that same external picture was used for mourning and weeping and showing deep sorrow. Is that you would tear your garments. And yet Joel's saying something different here. Let the internal, that's an external thing. You can put on a show for that, can't you? There were professional mourners who would go to funerals, and when Jesus told one of them to rise up and, and, and dance around or get up, they started laughing. They weren't really mourning. They were just there to put on the external show of mourning for the family. But Joel says there's an internal rending of the heart, tearing your heart. That's grieving over your sin. That's smelling the stench of sin, the way that it fills God's nostrils, and getting a deep sense of, loss that's gone on, looking at what you forfeited, the sweet relationship with God that you forfeited as this sin has crept into your life. So rend your hearts. Don't just do the outward show. That ought to be there. Weep, mourn, fast, seek God. But let the rending be internal. And I love how he appeals to the character of God could count on him. We could move him by their wholehearted repentance. Maybe even now, he'll pull out of this, this judgment that's coming for us. He's slow to anger, he's merciful, and they would call that out. For us, the gospel starts with mourning, with rending, with sorrow, with terror. That's the good news. I know it doesn't sound like it. But it really does start there. If you don't have that deep sense of the wrath that's been averted, then you have no sense of the joy of of the empty tomb, do you? You have no real deep sense that my sin was taken on Christ and that he paid the penalty for that. And I get to walk away scot-free because it was put on Christ. He who's forgiven much, what? Loves much. He who's forgiven little, loves how much? A wee little bit. 
How much are we all forgiven? A lot. Not just in my old life before Christ. Give me a break. That makes it sound like the second we become a Christian, walk nine feet above everyone else. That's not true. We have dirty feet and dirty hands and dirty minds that need to be washed by the blood of Christ. Now, praise God, the, the whole image of sanctification is that Christ is controlling us. The love of Christ is controlling us, and he's forming himself in us. So should you look different at the end of 2012 than you do today? If the love of Christ is controlling you, absolutely. Should your neighbors and friends and co-workers and family say, I don't know what's gotten into you, but you're a changed person, absolutely. And over and over, you're just giving glory to God, whose mercies are made new and made present and made visible in your life. Now, it's possible that kindness leads to presumption, doesn't it? The kindness of God leads to presumption on many people. This isn't new to our day and age, but, but many people say, where's, where's, where's the Lord's coming? You foolish Christians are going to once again look for the Lord. He's not showing up. Second Peter, I think, chapter 2 talks just all about that. We'll say, where is the promise of coming? All has gone on since the beginning of time. Nothing's changed. And in there, Peter says this. He says, it does it escapes their notice. They don't seem to pick up on the fact that this, this, this waiting that's gone on is for them. It's actually more kindness. So that they would have time to turn and to repent and bow the head, and bow the knee, bend the knee, and rend the heart, and receive the mercy. That's what this time is all about. But kindness is meant to lead to repentance, not presumption. Listen to Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness? There's a question to ponder this week. Look in the mirror and say, Dave, do you presume on the riches, richness of God's kindness? Family, do we presume on that? Church, do we presume on the kindness of God and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Two more and I'm done. Third thing is this, that it saves. Titus chapter 3, verse 5 says this, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. It is in the character, will, and ability of God to save. And that's great news for us, that it's not dependent on you and me. It's not dependent on us getting cleaned up, getting better, having a decent track record before we go and talk to the Lord about things. It's dependent on Him. Just write this down. You can read it later and read it in context, but Micah chapter 7. Verses 18 and 19 say this. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will gain, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. This God who rules and manages Everything is merciful to his people. And if that just sounds commonplace to you, it's because somehow you've allowed your love to grow cold and not hear that fresh. What person in history or in days 
present days have unequaled power over a land and yet are characterized by their people as merciful, slow to anger, abounding in love and goodness. In Ephesians chapter 2, the passage we know well in this church body, verse 4 says this, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What a great passage. Now the one writing this psalm that we're looking at, Psalm 86 today, is King David. And King David, as many of you know, blew it big time. And King David, as many of you know, had a nickname or a reputation as being a man after God's own heart. Wouldn't you love that? Psalm 51 is perhaps one of the greatest passages in all of Scripture where we see the rending of a relationship between God and a person, namely King David. And it's instructive for us to come back. I hope Psalm 51 is familiar to you because the life of a Christian is somewhat defined by second chances and third chances, and do-overs, and resets, and coming back and confessing to God, God, here's where I've been. You already know it. I'm just agreeing with you. I'm bringing my junk into the light to say, I'm sorry. I'm, I, I don't want to do this. You can have this. Thank you for your new mercies today. And Psalm 51, a king has sinned. And where in other religions, then and as, as is now, people when they sin, people when they have a sense of their mistakes and their errors and their evil, they do things to make amends for it. People in Bible times and people in 2011 are doing things like this. They're frantically running around doing religious kinds of activities. It might be a dance. It might involve cutting the flesh in some way, hurting yourself, whipping yourself. <laughs> denying yourself something, what are you doing? You're trying to make up for the wrong you've committed. There's sin, and so someone has to pay. Some people take that on themselves. Some dis display great devotion by various ceremonies or works or going to a place or or fasting or doing these different things. And what this is doing is it's, it's displaying great devotion so that their God or gods will be appeased and won't judge them or hurt them. Now contrast that to David, a man after God's own heart, who runs into the merciful arms of his love. That's what he does. And Psalm 51 recounts this. Yes, I committed adultery. Yes, I had a man killed. Yes, I flushed my integrity down toilet, but it's against you that I've sinned. You're the one I've wronged. There are repercussions and there's other things that I'll have to be dealt with, 
but you're the one, you're the one whose law I violated. And Psalm 51 is a keen picture of the fact that the merciful God saves. God is a lover who is wooing sinners. He's made the first move and he continues to pursue sinners. He is the hope of all men and women, no matter where they have been. And that's the fourth thing I want to just share with you is this. That God's mercy is freely offered to repentant sinners. God's mercy is freely offered to repentant sinners. I add repentant because of this distinction. The remission of sins, the forgiveness of sin, is always accompanied with repentance. And I'm not sure exactly how that works, to be honest. I'm still working through that. But what I do know is this. It's not somehow a payment, like you come and do this and I'll pay you off with some mercy. But I do know this. If you just as God show mercy and pour out forgiveness on those who aren't repentant, what you are doing is enabling and empowering sin. You are saying, continue to be rebellious in my kingdom. Continue to do the very things that the evil one came to do. But there's something that goes on when someone is repentant. And all through the scriptures, someone taught me this years ago, just look through the scriptures and what you see is law to the proud and grace to the humble. Those who humbly come to Jesus are forgiven. Over and over and over. Jesus could have thrown the book at these people. But he doesn't. But those who ever come looking to justify themselves, those who ever come who, who think they've been forgiven little so they love little, there's always lawgiving. And it's meant, it's meant to show them you will never, ever somehow gain a righteousness of your own. The righteousness comes from God in the person and work of Jesus Christ, period. And if you don't get that, you don't get it. Literally. You don't get it. You don't receive it. Psalm 32.5 says this. Catch how honest this is. Catch how this is bringing your stuff into the light. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Remember this word, Salah. You rest in that. You rest in that truth. Proverbs 28.13, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain, here's our word, mercy. Isn't that weird that the key to your, undo, to, to your freedom, to your salvation, is owning your sin, stating it, confessing it? The very thing you're trying to run away from and people try to block and deny and shove down and hide? It's the very thing that unlocks real life to them. It's inverted. It's totally different than how we would think of it. A lot of the, lot of the proud grace to the humble in Luke chapter 15, verse 18. There's a prodigal son that he's often called. It's really a merciful father. Maybe that's what the story should be called. But the sons run off. And in verse 18, he says, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. That's humility. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran. 
and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Amazing. Another scene, Jesus is is teaching and a woman's thrown at his feet caught in the very act of adultery. Jesus says and does some things and he looks up and he says, where are your accusers? And she says, they're all gone. Beautiful picture. Jesus chases the accusers away with his holiness, with his law. And then verse 11 says, neither do I condemn you and from now on sin no more. Romans 8, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have a merciful God. I want to conclude with this. 2 Corinthians 5.17 is where I read from at the start with the love of Christ controlling us. Ben, if you'd make your way to the front. It goes on to say in verse 17 this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? It's a new creation. How do you sustain this new creation? There's new mercies every morning. And then you have a God who's never leaving or forsaking you. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Don't wait for New Year's. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him who knew no sin, or he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Sometimes we think that God making his appeal through us might mean just berating people with neatly lined truth. There's an element to that. There's an element to just speaking truth. But isn't it a powerful picture to just say, here is part of how God is making his appeal to a lost and dying world is through him being merciful to this guy. And if God can be merciful to him, if that guy genuinely is walking in new mercies every morning, maybe there's something to this. Tim Keller wrote a great book called Ministries of Mercy. He really just recounts the Good Samaritan story. And in it he says this, the ministry of mercy is the best advertising a church can have. It convinces a community that this church provides people with actions for their problems, not only talk. It shows the community that this church is compassion. And I close with saying what I started at the beginning with, the mercy of God in our lives gives hope to others and shows off a great and mighty Father. Would you pray with me? God, we want you to advertise your greatness through our lives. And Lord, not just through our lips, but through our hands and through our feet and through our pocketbooks and through our cars and our stuff and our home. The very energy and health that we possess, we want to avail that to you, God. We cry mercy. We surrender. We say, Here it is, all of it. Advertise your greatness with it. As Rob pointed out, God, we we don't want to stand at a distance and name drop. We thank you that you didn't just come up and clean up our stuff and be merciful to us and then shoo us out of your courts like some high and mighty king. 
but God somehow. And it's hard for us to grasp or imagine. But Lord, you see it fit to reveal yourself to us as an intimate lover. That our church, that this church that you've purchased and you provide for and you care for is your bride. And there's coming a day when we'll, we'll be reunited and we look forward to and hasten that day. God, just now as we continue in sacrificial worship, sacrificial giving, sacrificial giving of ourselves after the close of the song, we need your mercy in our life every step of the way. We thank you and trust you for it. In Jesus' name.